time or a good way uh, to share what I'm going to share uh, here. <clears throat> um, but, you know, as, as a body, as a church, as people who walk and share life together, I think it's important for us to, uh, to be aware of these things. And so, um, actually, there were two deaths this week that I want to make you aware of. One was Carrie Lennox's mother uh, passed away in Phoenix. And uh, so Pete and Carrie uh, are there with their family uh, now. And in a moment when we pray, we're going to pray for Carrie and, and for Pete and for their family. And then the other uh, was a gentleman here in our church, and that was Lee Bellamy. And uh, so on Thursday, uh, Lee uh, went to be home uh, with the Lord, his wife Rachel, actually sitting right here in the second row. 55 years, Rachel? Was it 55 years? 55 years. Um, if you've been married any length of time, the thought of not having a spouse by your side is, is jarring. And... Uh, so tell you, Rachel, I'm going to come down and I'm going to pray right next to you if you're okay with that. I don't think you'd mind that. You guys are fine. Just stay there. We'll kind of work our way in. But um, I'd invite all of you, if you're close, feel free to put your hand on Rachel. And uh, yeah, I'll hold your hand. That's great. And uh, let's pray uh, for these folks. And uh, we'll pray for our time together in the word as well. Jesus, as we just sang that last song about uh, being consumed with you, being filled with you, I think about the everlasting light and glory uh, that eternity, uh, at least that what we will behold in eternity is maybe a better way of saying that. And yet on this side, it's so painful and hard as we watch loved ones, as we watch family members go in front of us and are left with the weight and the struggle uh, of what's behind. And so in this moment, <clears throat> God, we pray uh, for those who are mourning. We pray for Rachel and for her daughter. God, we pray for, uh, for Pete and for Carrie and for their family. Um, yeah, God, I'm reminded that there are so many others that find themselves in a similar situation and how um, brutal this time of year can be because we're reminded of loved ones that we've lost recently or who aren't with us. And so, God, we pray for your perfect peace, for your incredible comfort and care, um, God, we recognize your nearness, uh, but I pray specifically for these folks that they would sense it and that they would know it in the fullness of who they are. God, as we move forward, as we open your word, I think how appropriate to talk about the universal need of a savior. And while Carrie's mom and Lee are living in the fullness of that, God, would it be a great reminder to us that for all of us, that we need a Savior, and Lord Jesus, you are that Savior. So be glorified today, be honored today. Uh, do what only you can do. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, we're going to get your Bibles out, and uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy 1. And uh, not your typical Christmas passage, but that's on purpose. And uh, kind of wild, uh, kind of wild, honestly, to think that Christmas is this week. Did it sneak up on anybody else? Yeah. Like, how in the world is Christmas this Friday? And uh, I don't know about you. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm not really feeling Christmas this year. So you can call me Scrooge. 
okay? Or you can make fun of me or say what I'm just telling you. I, I'm just, I'm not really feeling Christmas. And maybe that's because it snuck up and it's, it's not because I haven't thought about it. It's not because I don't love Christmas. I, this is one of my favorite times um, of the year, but I'm just not feeling it. As I started thinking about that, I, I found myself getting frustrated, not necessarily frustrated that I'm not feeling it, but just at that notion that we're supposed to feel Christmas, right? And, and as I began to think about Christmas, and, and Randy, actually, Pastor Randy was talking about this here just a moment ago, I, I found myself in some of my frustration tied to that fact that so often when we think of Christmas, I think we're too re- reductionistic with it. I think we're too compartmentalized with it. And, and this is maybe a wild thought for some of you. I don't think we go far enough with Christmas. Now, when I say I don't think we go far enough, I'm not talking about shopping or get-togethers or, or holiday parties or things of that nature. We, I'd be fine if we just eliminated shopping this time of year. And uh, I'm, I'm down with the get-togethers. That's great. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the biblical narrative. I'm talking about the whole of the gospel story. See, because I think far too often what we do with Christmas is, is we compartmentalize it to, this is the time where we celebrate sweet baby Jesus. And in March or April, we do like Jesus on the cross. And then for the other nine or 10 months out of the year, we, we do some other form of Jesus. So that's, like, that's parable Jesus, or that's loving Jesus, or that's miracle Jesus. And we have these compartments that we stick them into. And yet it's the whole of him that at every point in time should come bursting forth in our celebration. You see, Christmas, Christmas is far more than a baby or even a savior in a manger. It's far more than that. I would suggest to you that I believe Christmas is the pinnacle event for followers of Jesus because this is the time where he came to save sinners. Now you might say, wait, 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 wait. What about the cross? Well, it's culminated in the cross. But the cross never happens if Jesus doesn't first come. And really my heart and my desire is that it becomes increasingly difficult for us to even separate the two. That, that, that I would find it so hard to look at the cross without thinking of Jesus coming and that as I approach Christmas and thinking of him coming, I can't help but think of the cross and that they're tied to each other. And it's not just, well, this is sweet baby Jesus time and in March or April we'll do um, Savior on the cross time. See, you have to understand, and as much as I love Christmas, Jesus is not a baby today. He's not at rust Okay, um, he's not in someone's home. He's not at a shelter or downtown. Today, right now, you know what Jesus is doing? He's seated on the throne. He is the risen, ruling Savior. That's what he's doing right now. I'd like to think that he's got his feet up. Out of care in the world. Because he holds it all in his hand. And so, yes, I'm all for, I'm all for us rightly celebrating and remembering his birth I'm all for that, but really two, two cautions here as we move into 1 Timothy. One is we don't want to compartmentalize this. And two, we don't want to reduce the fact that the event that took place 2,000 years ago is what's happening today. Because that's not who Jesus is today. And so why Christmas? Well, here's why Christmas. Here's the title of the message. Here's really where we're going this morning. Because Jesus came to save sinners. 
Jesus came to save sinners. Um, more personally put, Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to save me. And so let's turn our attention here. First Timothy 1. And not exactly your typical Christmas text. That's on purpose. Uh, let's see what Timothy had to say to Paul. I'm going to start in verse 12. We'll read through verse 17. And spend the rest of our time examining this text. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I encourage you to read along as I read aloud. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, <clears throat> persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 15, man, you gotta love verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, let me just speak briefly to why First Timothy on the Sunday before Christmas. Um, and, and first of all, let me state that clearly, Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he's not talking about the Christmas story, at least not the way that we typically celebrate, celebrate it or the way that we would typically see it. But that's really my point and my intent this morning is that I want us to see beyond nativity scenes and advent wreaths and precious moments renditions of, of Christmas and sweet baby Jesus and see the full picture, the full story of what God is after. That we would embrace with equal measure what happens in Matthew 1 or what happens in Luke 1 and 2 with what happens in the book of Revelation and everything in between. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners and so with that, three things in the text that I want us to see here this morning. Here's the first. Look at verses 12 through 14. Why Christmas? Because we're broken. Why Christmas? Why do we need Christmas? Why such a big deal around Christmas? Why the fuss? Well, let's start with where you and I find ourselves because we're broken. And so as Paul is writing to Timothy, and, and in 1 Timothy, he's writing, um, uh, Paul writes to Timothy with, with respect to instructions on the church and how it's to function and how it's to be governed and things of that nature. Uh, and and so, so that's part of what he's talking about in verse 12 and some of the, the, the preface to what he really gets to here. But let me read verses 12 and 13, and here, here's what I want you to notice or pay attention to. I want you to notice what Paul does or what Paul's responsible for. And then I want you to notice what God does or what God is responsible for. So we're broken. Here's the first point that I would suggest to you is that we rejected God. And so just look at verse 12 and 13. Okay, Paul, I thank him. Okay, one point for Paul. He thanked God. Good for you. Now we're going to talk an awful lot about what God did. Who has given me strength. God did that. The strength came through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's also an act of God. Because he judged me faithful. Okay, God did that. Appointing me to his service. That's still God. Okay, now we're going to get back to what Paul did. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, or a violent aggressor. It's not exactly a great resume in terms of, let me show you what I bring to the table with respect to myself and God. 
I was a persecutor, I was a blasphemer, and I was an insolent opponent or a violent aggressor. And then Paul tells us this, one more thing that God did, but I received mercy. He says this because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and most likely what he's referencing there is what we see in Acts 26 when Paul's making his defense before Agrippa, and he's saying, uh, talking about his conversion and how Paul thought that he was honoring God and persecuting and, and attempting to kill and destroy Christianity only to come to realize that he was actually fighting against God. But see, we're broken, and part of our brokenness stems to the fact that we have rejected God. Now, I think this rejection of God reveals a few interesting things uh, that we need to make note of. Uh, Here's the first. There's three of them. Let me make note of this first one here just briefly. Part of our rejection of God is it reveals God's mission. Part of our rejection of God reveals God's mission and that Jesus came to save us. Now, I'm not going to really press into it here at this particular moment because we're going to spend an awful lot of time talking about that here in just a few minutes. But just understand that's part of what is revealed here. Secondly... It reveals our brokenness. Now, Paul speaks here specifically to the ways that he had sinned and rebelled against God, right? That he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Now, those might not be the particular ways that you have rebelled against God. But loved ones, make no mistake that you too have rebelled against God. In fact, the Bible is very, very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that each of us has chosen our way, not God's way, and attempted to do things in rejecting what God has laid out for us. And so maybe the things that Paul mentions aren't your things, but we've all sinned, so we're all in this. We're all guilty. We all find ourselves in this same place. Now, let me just ask you, are you aware of your own sinfulness? Can you identify your sinfulness, your rejection, your rebellion, your um, God at arm's length response to him? Secondly, are you aware of your need of a savior? Some of you, some of you might be in here like, I don't need a savior. It's because you haven't identified the sin in your life. You haven't identified the ways that you've rejected God and the position that it puts you into, which is what Paul's gonna move to here in just a moment. we've rejected God. It reveals God's mission. It reveals our brokenness. Uh, Thirdly, it reveals really God's response to our brokenness, which is God's mercy. It reveals the fullness and the depths of God's mercy. And so it starts with us rejecting God. But then notice what happens here. Look at verse 13, second half of verse 13. Paul says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And he goes on in verse 14 and says this, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So we're broken. It starts with us rejecting God. But then notice God's response to that is that God extends mercy and grace to us. In our brokenness, in our rejection, in our failure, God's response to that is to extend both mercy and grace to us. And that's what Paul says. I received mercy In fact, literally, if you were to translate the Greek literally there, Paul would say, God mercied me. It was a complete and total act of God. None of it was done by Paul. And of course, the mercy and the grace come specifically in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. So let's just talk about each of these items for a moment. I think they warrant us pressing in. 
uh, on each of them because mercy and grace, uh, oftentimes people will confuse them or, or, or we think that they're synonymous and they're two very different things actually. And so first of all, God extends mercy. Uh, mercy, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So think of punishment, think of consequence, think of a criminal in a court of law, think of a disobedient child, think of a rebellious student. You would think some type of punishment, some type of consequence is necessary. That's what, to, to receive mercy is to commit a crime, to, to be rebellious, and to have a just penalty be due you, but you're not given that. So imagine for a moment that I got in my car right after service and I thought it would be a good idea to drive up and down Southern Boulevard at 80 miles an hour. You would hope, one, that I would get pulled over and two, that there would be some kind of just penalty. Now I think it would be um, maybe hilarious if you choose to drive 80 miles an hour up Southern Boulevard that you'd get pulled over on Sunday morning coming into church, right? And have the whole little um, parade of shame go by as the cop is handing you your ticket as everyone comes into church. But if I were to do that, we would expect some type of consequence. Mercy would be that we're released from the punishment or the penalty of that. Paul had committed many crimes, if you will, against God, and yet he did not receive the full punishment or the full wrath that God could have rightly given to him because God extended mercy. And the same is true for you and I. That if God were to give us what we truly deserve, it would be the fullness of his wrath and his punishment but he doesn't do that. He doesn't subject us to his wrath. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Now can you, in this moment, begin to wrap your mind around what you truly deserve from God? I mean, we live in an entitlement society, so sometimes we really struggle with what we deserve versus what we think we should get. What we deserve is to be utterly and completely destroyed. That's what you and I have earned. Yet that's far from the reality that we live in, isn't it? And it's because of the mercy of God. It's because he spares us from the penalty. He spares us from his wrath. He spares us from the full consequence coming down and crushing us. Now, loved ones... Don't ever lose the sense of the weight of what we deserve versus what God gives to us because of his mercy. We need to be reminded of what God has spared us from. God extends mercy. That's why at the beginning of verse 12, Paul is thanking God. He knows exactly what he's been spared of. Uh, no doubt that would be an appropriate re response for us as well, that we would simply thank God God for his mercy in our life. But it doesn't just stop there. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Not only does God extend mercy to us, God overflows his grace to us. And where mercy, where mercy is um, 
not getting what you do deserve. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve or you haven't earned. Think of a gift or a bonus or, or a reward that you've done nothing to earn or merit. But it's not just grace that God gives us, but look at that word. It's overflowing grace. Uh, one of the translations I was reading, and it says more than abundant grace. If you want a depiction or a picture of this, think Niagara Falls. And think of just standing under that. And the waterfall, the overflowing, abundant measure of God's grace flowing onto us. In fact, it was interesting. I came across a, an illustration in my studies this week where it talked about an, an artist who had actually drawn a picture of Niagara Falls. And he submitted it to an art gallery for, for a showing, and, uh, but he never entitled uh, the work of art. And so the gallery, and uh, needing to come up with a title, simply uh, titled the, the picture, More to Follow. And isn't that an apt description of God's grace in our life? There's more to follow. There's more to follow. It's, it's abundant. It's full right? It's not measured. It, we, we, there's never a point in time where it's like, well, we might run out. We should use it sparingly. Only take what you need. Like at what point do you start going, hey, I'm worried we're going to exhaust Niagara Falls. Yeah, that's not our problem. That's not our issue. Now, as we think about this, it requires Right, it requires for us to begin to consider and, and, and to say, what would we do with this? How would we respond to this? Martin Luther had a great quote with respect to this particular verse and the concept of God's overflowing grace to us. Here's what he says. He says, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as a hundred thousand lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as an educated man is able to make a thousand others educated and he, the more he gives, the more he has. Listen, listen. So is Christ our Lord an infinite source of all grace so, to, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. It's what the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says when he says this. He says, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's just this overflowing, overwhelming measurement of God's grace. In fact, you can't even measure it. And so as great as it is to think about these things, to consider these things, honestly, it should change the way that you and I live our lives. You think about this overflowing concept of God's grace. How is it that we begin to let this change? Here's just a few ways. Maybe make note of these. Ask yourself this, first of all, with respect to God's overflowing grace. Do I simply live in his grace? Do I live in the grace that God affords to me? Do, will I position myself under that waterfall and let it pour over me constantly? over and over and over again. Some of you don't think you're worthy of it. Some of you think that God has his hand on the faucet and when you're good, he'll turn it on, but when you're bad, he'll turn it off. Well, the faucet is constantly running. He cranks that thing to full measure and leaves it. Will we simply live in that, in the fullness of that, 
Now, the, in that, that's not, I'm not excusing sin in our life. I'm not suggesting that you can go out there, sin your face off. It's like, well, I've got the fullness of God's grace. doesn't matter. Because what Paul says right after Romans 5, 20 and 21 is he says, should we, should, should we sin more that grace may abound all the more? And he says, may it never be. So it's not an excuse for sin, but it's, a, it's freedom from the penalty of that sin. Will we simply live in it? Second of all, will we extend that grace and that mercy to others? In the same way that God has overflowed that grace and he's extended mercy into your life, will you in turn turn around and extend that to others? Now it's easy, right? Come on, let's be honest. It's really easy to be the recipient of the fullness of grace and mercy. It's a little bit harder to be the, the point of origin to send that out to others. But isn't that the very thing that Christ calls us to? And in the same way that he's done that for us, that we would do the same, that we would reciprocate, that we would extend that to others, will we extend that grace and and mercy to others? Thirdly, will we simply thank God for it? I think far too often we take for granted these things, become a little bit indifferent or apathetic around the fullness of God's grace and his mercy and all that he's done for us. And will we thank him for it? Jesus came to save sinners, first of all, because we're broken, that we're sinful, that we have issues. We need Christmas because we desperately need a Savior because we're broken. And it's exactly what we see in verse 15 and 16. Look at what Paul says here. Second item, why Christmas? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Look at what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. When we think about Christmas, we have to think about the fact that Jesus came to save sinners. So when you think about him in the manger... When you think about him as a boy in the temple, when you think about his, him telling parables, when you think about him healing someone, when you think about him having debates with the religious leader, uh, leaders, when you think about him on the cross, whatever it may be, when you think of Jesus, you have to think of the fact that he came to save sinners. That was his mission. That was, in fact, he told us over and over again, here's my mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sick. I mean, I go on and on and on, but you get the point. Jesus came to save sinners. Now, two things with respect to verses 15 and 16 that I want us to see. Look at verse 15. First of all, Jesus came to save me. Jesus came to save me. Paul says this, um, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost Paul states that he is the foremost of sinners. Some of us could maybe give him a run for his money, okay? Um, Others of you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not like that guy. I don't have near the issues that Paul has. Unless you begin to walk down that road and begin to think to yourself, well, I'm not like him. I don't have the issues that he has. I'm not as bad of a sinner as Paul is. Okay, we just said it. You're still a sinner, which means you're still separated from God and you still desperately need a savior. 
right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've already mentioned that. See, we're busted, just like Paul was busted. We're all in this. And so notice, as Paul speaks of himself here, that Jesus came to save people, specific people, not just this generic, general, kind of broad. He's for humanity. Came for people, for individuals. That he came for you, Grace. That he came for you, Mac. David, he showed up for you. Bill, he showed up for you. Don, he came and saved you, didn't he? Right, and I could name each and every one of you in this room, and the truth is the same, that Jesus came to save specific people. And he saves us specifically from the penalty and the weight that would have separated us from God all of, for all of time. Now for all of us, all of us, we have to ask this question here and wrestle with this. Has he saved me? Has he redeemed me? And if you're like, I'm not sure, then answer this question. Can you look to a point in your time where you've turned from sin towards Jesus, trusting in him alone? If yes, then yes, he saved you. If you're not sure, then you've got some serious questions that you need to ask yourself. Now notice it has nothing to do with you being a good person. It has nothing to do with, with you trying harder or being better or, or being more righteous. It has everything to do with what Christ has done in your place. That's the point. If you could do it on your own, we don't need a savior. But we can't. Therefore, we need a savior. And he came to save me. Now, before you start to get a big head, I think, man, I'm so special. God came and saved me. You're not alone, all right, because he came to save others. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Okay, why, Paul? Why in you? Here's why. Because Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That what he's doing in me becomes an example of what he wants to do in others. Paul's saying, I'm a model. I'm an example. I'm, I, I'm one, not because of how great I am, but I'm, I am showing you what Christ wants to do in your life as well. So yes, Jesus came to save sinners individually, but he also came in a corporate sense or a collective sense. But he shows such incredible patience with us. In fact, here Paul describes it as perfect patience. Peter writes about a similar concept in 2 Peter 3 when he says this. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Now listen to what he says next not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See what he's after? Right now, this very moment, God could fairly, uh, completely, totally, with, with, with full justice, full equity, could judge every one of us right now. Like, execute justice right here in this moment. But he chooses not to. He chooses to withhold his wrath. He chooses to withhold his punishment so that others may turn, so that others may repent, 
so that others may come to know the truth of who Jesus is. And so in that, God endures further scorn, further ridicule, further rebellion, so that some may turn and repent. It's his patience, his perfect patience, there's a story of a guy, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right or not, but I think it's pronounced Takichi Ichi. Japanese man, lived about 100 years ago. And in 1918, he was uh, ultimately uh, hanged for murder. It's a guy who was arrested and imprisoned well over 20 times. One of the most wicked and vile men that you'll ever meet. Uh, but before receiving his death sentence, and at some point in time while he was in prison, uh, there were two little missionary ladies who were serving in Japan at that particular time, and they sent uh, Takichi a New Testament. And he began to read it. And as he read it, he came to see the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. And on one particular visit, uh, or one particular correspondence with these ladies, he, he was reading something in 2 Corinthians 6, and he was struck by a particular line that Paul wrote there with this idea of being poor, yet making many rich. And Takichi went on to write this. Now listen to what he says. He says, This certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived, sound familiar? Repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ and so may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. God's perfect patience. God's perfect patience in Paul's life, God's perfect patience in Takichi's life. No doubt God has been perfectly patient in your life and in mine. And we consider God's perfect patience and his forbearance and his waiting and his tolerating and, and, and his, his just continuing to hold back of his wrath. I think there's some pretty huge implications and applications for us that become very pressing and very relevant in our lives today as we consider this. So here's implications of God's perfect patience in our life. Here's just three. We could probably come up with 30 without trying hard. But here's the first. None are too far gone. None. Let me, let me just be really emphatic about this here, that none are too far gone. Now some of you, some of you, you think of a child you think of a sibling, you think of a friend, maybe you think of a spouse. There's, just, there's no way. There's no way. Now for all of the drawbacks of coming from an incredibly broken family, I got a number of trophies of God's grace that share the same DNI that I share. I don't struggle with the concept that none are too far gone because most of the ones that were too far gone are in my family. Like, I know them, and I grew up with them. I, I saw that, and I've seen what God has done. But some of you, you're like, just, they're too far. They're too far. Of course, the implication of God's perfect patience is that we wouldn't give up, that we wouldn't quit praying, that we wouldn't quit pursuing, that we wouldn't quit asking 
God, I've got some people in my life that I think, well, I don't know that they're too far gone, but it sure feels like they're close. God's grace cannot be outsend. You can't get outside of it. You can't. I wouldn't encourage you to try, but you can't do it. None, none, none are too far gone. I mean, for goodness sakes, the dude writing this is about as far gone or was about as far gone as you could possibly be. Dramatically saved. None are too far gone. Maybe for some of you, when I said that, you weren't thinking about a loved one or a family member or a close friend. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about yourself. And so maybe what you need to hear is this second implica- implication is that God's grace and his mercy is full and complete. When you consider God's perfect patience, you have to understand that God's mercy and his grace is full and complete. Now, I've, I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this line. Mike, God could never forgive me for blank. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have said that to me. Some of you, the moment that I said that, I don't have to say what that thing is because your mind runs right to that moment, right to that time, right to that season in your life, right to that event, right to that vile or wicked thing that took place. You go, there's just, there's just no way. Want to bet? To say that you could get outside of God's grace and God's mercy would be akin to taking one of those little plastic beach pails standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls and saying, I'm going to empty this thing. That is an exercise in futility. You can't do it. You just can't. It's comprehensive, it's full, it's complete. And, and if you were, for let's just say for a moment, you felt like, I'm getting out in front of it. There's no way you could sustain it. God's relentless, he's not going to stop. That waterfall is just going to keep on flowing. And keep on coming before long, consumed by it. Now, see, the reality of God's mercy and grace being full and complete is that it doesn't lack, that it's never in question. But for some of you, some of you, you're, you're saddled with this guilt and this shame, and it's like God, God could, He could never cover that, or I don't feel like He could cover that. And, and then there's this. On top of, Mike, God could never forgive me for. I hear things like, Mike, you don't know what I've done. Let me say this in the most loving way possible. Um, because when I say I don't care, it's not in a coldness or, or, or an indifference. It's that it doesn't matter. Because whatever you've done, it absolutely pales in comparison to the fullness of God's grace and his mercy. It, 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 it's just so much bigger than the, than the worst thing that you and I could bring. So, okay, you're right. I don't know what you've done. How about I say this? I know what God has done. And I know that it covers anything that you could even conceive of doing. And so in that in that will we throw ourselves into God's grace and his mercy? Will we, will we begin to allow that truth to permeate our soul? Some of you, you need to let that truth permeate your soul that, that God has forgiven you 
that his love is full and complete, that his mercy and his grace does not lack. Get this, when God looks at you right now, do you know what he sees? Someone tell me, what does he see? Thank you for saying it confidently, right? His righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. It's not that God can't see your sin early this morning or how you blew it this week or, or how you're failing miserably in this area of your life. No, he sees that perfectly. But if you're in Christ, you're covered by Christ and what Jesus sees is the, or, and what God sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ in your life. Not your failure. Not your shortcoming. And so if God says that you're righteous, where are you? No, 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 no. Don't say it lamely and apathetically. Come on. If God says that you're righteous, what are you? Righteous. We're righteous. God's grace and his mercy is full and complete. Here's the third implication. It's kind of a violent swing, but it's important that we see the full picture here, that there's a warning of judgment. That God's per perfect patience, that, that as he continues to be patient with his people, but that as we continue to reject this truth, that there's the day coming that his wrath is going to be poured out. That God will, that a day is coming where God will no longer be patient. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like a day is coming where um, that those who don't repent and turn and follow, it's going to go very, very poorly. And that's about the mildest way we can put it. I read 2 Peter 3.9 about God being slow to fulfill his promise. Here's what Peter says in the very next verse. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, there's a warning. There's a warning that Paul is making. There's a warning that Peter is making that we would heed this warning that God's patience will not last eternally if we don't turn and repent and embrace by faith the truth of Jesus. This warning of judgment. Why Christmas? Because Jesus came to save sinners. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past looked like. I don't care how many skeletons or graveyards you've got in your closet. We need Christmas because we are sinners who need a Savior and that's exactly, exactly what God gave us. Jesus came to save sinners. Here's the final thing. Verse 17, Paul says this. Really, it's a doxology, if you will. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, yeah, amen right? That's a great place for an amen. Um, but here, Paul speaking to the superiority of God above all others, and specifically through the person and the character of God. Now, let me just... Let me just cut right to the chase with respect to verse 17. Uh, will we honor, will we honor God and will we honor the Savior? I mean, Paul arrived at that place. No doubt Timothy arrived at that place. Um, will, we, will we arrive at that place where we're gonna glorify the king of the ages, the one who's immortal, invisible, and the only God? Are we gonna extend glory and honor to him forever and ever? I want you to understand, make no mistake, it's gonna happen. The question for us is just whether or not we're gonna participate in it. I can be a part of it or I can be an observant or I, I can be a bystander and not have any say in this. It's gonna happen. It would be in our best interest to simply participate in it. 
And so why Christmas? Because we're broken. Because Jesus saves. Because God's going to be honored. So as we approach Christmas, I mean, in five days, five days, uh, you're going to do whatever you're going to do on Christmas morning. And uh, for some of you, for some of you, I hope for all of you, you have a great Christmas. And for some of you, you will. You'll have a phenomenal Christmas. You'll spend it with friends and family members. It'll be super fun. It'll be glorious. It'll be fantastic. Uh, For others of you, I understand this will be a very, very difficult season. Because of death or some division in your family, some wedge that's been driven between you and someone else. It'll be, it, it, for some, this is just a miserable time of the year. Regardless of where you find yourself, the reality is that every single one of us needs a savior. That's what we need more than anything this Christmas is a savior who will rescue us from our sins which is the very thing, thank the Lord, that God has given us. Let's pray.